we are back with another episode of Gladio for Europe. I am Russian Sam, reunited once again with Liam. Yes, finally back on American soil. Yeah, uh, as am I. Both of us ended up having uh, taking a vacation at the same time, yeah. uh, just unplanned. But uh, no, but it, it worked out. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Uh, Liam went to Japan. I went to Georgia, yes. uh, the country, not the state. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We unfortunately had to miss a week of programming last week, but uh, since coming back from Georgia and Japan, we've got a lot of really cool ideas uh, for future episodes, and we've been working pretty hard on a, uh, particularly on this two-part Japan series that we're about to drop, so we're really excited about that. And I know, Sam, you have a lot of stuff to talk about, uh, about the Caucasus that you visited, about Georgia and Armenia, which, you know, that's a really interesting part of the world with such an interesting history. So I know there's a lot that we can draw from there uh, in the near future. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's absolutely fascinating. It has a really, really long written history in a way that many places don't. Yeah. And there's just a lot to talk about. So uh, this episode is going to be more of a debrief episode where we just talk about our observations from the two corners yes. of Asia. Yes, exactly. The yeah. of Asia, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah exactly. Because, you know, like Japan, you know, the, the easternmost end of that whole cultural sphere. And then, you know, arguably uh, in like an archaic European view, Georgia and Armenia and the Caucasus is the westernmost end of Asia, you know, beside that bad in Turkey, yeah? Uh, yes, this episode's gonna be kind of a, this is gonna be kind of like an under the hood episode where Sam and I are just gonna casually talk about our observations about these three countries that we visited. So, because I was in Japan, primarily in southern and western Japan, and uh, Sam was in the Caucasus, in Armenia and Georgia. These were both just trips for fun, but they ended up being, you know, very uh, fruitful trips for podcasting reasons, because there's just a lot that we learned about all of these places. Yeah, um, absolutely. But uh, before we continue, just on the note of Asia, I just wanted to tell this because uh, I actually have a funny story pertaining to my dad and uh, the classification of Georgia. <laughs> yes, I know this one. Many years ago, my dad finally got on the computer and uh, he started visiting some really unpleasant sites. Yeah, like the, the Russian equivalent to Infowars, essentially. Uh, yeah, yeah. So like I, I was always hearing an earful about um, Europe civilization and oh, how yeah. it's under assault and yada that yada yada culture. so like i started to just tease him to really tease out where exactly the border of europe and asia is so one time i just started naming countries and it's like russia europe turkey asia armenia europe azerbaijan asia georgia uh-huh. question mark asia and I found this interesting because I thought his criteria. Yeah, and, and just, and just to, to pause here, to, to pause here for the viewers at home, Georgia is northwest of Armenia. So if Armenia is Europe, you'd think that naturally Georgia must also be Europe. Yeah, like when I started this, I thought he would define Europe in terms of Christendom and whatever. And I mean, by that metric, then yeah. Georgia would absolutely be Europe. Then I stood and asked him why Georgia doesn't count as Europe. And he just started telling me about how they treat their women badly. So they're not Europeans. God, yeah, exactly. And I just, you know, I think also it's like, you know, if you don't want me, if this is in the docs, you know, I think it's very funny that your dad, who's a Russian Jewish guy, is like so into the idea of like defending Christian civilization. That's just what nationalism does to your brain. Well, not not Christian civilization, but European civilization. And I mean, yeah, he's got brain worms. He's reading some multipolarity stuff these days. Uh, I try not to talk Uh-oh. about it <laughs> because uh, it would just uh-huh. drive me crazy. But uh, no, it is yeah, what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like, no, no, I think that, um, I think 
that Russian boomer nationalism stuff really is a great complement to American boomer nationalism. It's just as incoherent. It's just as annoying. I know I, I, we might have some Z-pilled listeners, but I, I can't fuck with that. Like, no, that, that's awful. Yeah, no, no, uh, not a not a fan at all. No. But anyway, <laughs> as Georgia and uh, and Japan are the two corners of Asia, they actually have another connection, yeah. uh, namely Buddhism. Yes. Yeah. There's a famous saying that the Japanese are uh, are born Shinto, marry Christian, and die Buddhist. Yes, and we're actually going to talk about that in our next episode. Uh, we're going to go into, we're going to explain <laughs> why that phrase actually sort of makes sense. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Jap- Japan is obviously a country with a very rich Buddhist history where many people today are Buddhist to some extent. But what we found out was that on the other end of this supposed Asian continent, Georgia also has a really interesting Buddhist link. I think we've mentioned the hagiography of Barlam and, and Josephat, which is like a Christianized version of the Buddha story. And as it turns out, that text was transmitted into the Western European languages through Georgian, specifically in the 10th century. That was when it was originally written and then it uh, got translated into Greek. And that's how uh, Europe came to know the Buddha, Barlam. Yeah, no, which is really interesting. And, and of course, uh, from what I understand, when Europeans would later re-encounter Buddhism, primarily through the activities of Portuguese and Dutch merchants, they had no idea that it was the same guy, mm-hmm. which is kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, very, very funny. Uh, we'll talk about that. I think that's, that's going to be a big focus of our upcoming episode. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, really interesting stuff. Uh, and just, I just want to pause for one second on that point. Just the, the point about Japan and Georgia being the same continent. Because I just think that that just kind of shows how specious the idea of continents having any cultural value is. Whenever anyone talks about Asian culture or African culture, for that matter, or Native American culture, it's just that's such a that's absolute nonsense because these parts of the world are so big. There's so much shocking cultural and environmental diversity between them that there's so little that you can say that is unifying about Asian culture. You know, uh, I think as we're going to find out in this episode, as we talk about Georgia and Armenia and Japan, I think that except for this faint memory of the Buddha, there is incredibly little that unites these places. And uh, I think that's it's kind of funny, but then, but from the European perspective, you know, if you're standing in London or Berlin looking, looking outward, everything east of you, that's all Asia. It's the Orient, you know? Uh, even like the Balkans were at one point described as Oriental in the 19th century. Yeah, um, although uh, Georgia actually, it does occupy this sort of borderland area between Europe and Asia in as much as we want to yeah, ascribe yeah. these terms of having as having yeah. any kind of uh, reality, just because like, I-, I mean, on the religious angle, for example, uh, very rich history of Zoroastrianism yes. Yes, in absolutely. Georgia and Armenia prior to the introduction of Christianity. And in fact, uh, in Belisi today, there, there are even the ruins of, of, of a Zoroastrian fire temple that yeah. you could visit. And, that, and that's very interesting because even though, you know, the Buddhist history in the Caucasus is incredibly faint. It's like it's the Barlam story, basically, just, basically just that. Uh, Zoroastrianism did once have... It, um, it's also the Kalmyks, I believe. Oh, the Kalmyks true. are yeah, well, uh, Buddhist, but they tend to yeah, up the later. Kal- the Kalmyks, uh, if anyone isn't familiar, they are a Mongolian-speaking culture in southwest Russia, pretty far from Mongolia, uh, who came probably as refugees sometime in the 17th century, Fleeing some kind of violence in the Chinese Empire. That we could actually, we maybe eventually we should do a whole episode on the Kalmyks. Oh, absolutely. Really, it's a very interesting group of people. Some people think Vladimir Lenin mm-hmm. might have been part Kalmyk. Um, but, but, but yeah, uh, but uh, I was going to say that uh, although there isn't that much of a rich Buddhist history in the Caucasus, besides the Kalmyks and besides the Varlam story, Zoroastrianism, the you know traditional religion of, of Iran, 
does have a very rich history because the Caucasus for many, many years was under Iranian control, uh, especially the Sassanids or Sasanians in the early Middle Ages. They were the last Iranian dynasty before the Islamic expansion. Uh, and what's kind of interesting about these guys, uh, one thing I, I love, a little fact I love is that the semi-legendary ruling family of the, the Sasanians, the kind of, I guess you'd call them uh, the act the literal satraps of that part of the empire, their last name, their clan name was Bagratoni, which is probably a name that you know, Sam. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you meant uh, Bagrationi. Well, it's it's ba it's Bagratoni. It's like it's Bagratoni, I think, in Georgian, and then Bagrationi in Russian. And uh, it's it eventually uh, that surname has survived basically to the present in the Russian Empire. Yeah. Because eventually, as Georgia was annexed into the Russian Empire in like the 17th century, I guess, families claiming to from this ancient Persian family were then incorporated into another empire. And there was the famous uh, General Bagration of the uh, Napoleonic Wars. Oh, yeah, yeah. And of course, later on, uh, it became Operation Bagration. The name, his namesake was used in World War II in the great counteroffensive against fascism. Right. And, and speaking of Iranian dynasties, the dynastic history of the Caucasus having Iranian connections actually go even before the Sasanians, namely because uh, the kings of Armenia for a very long time and by proxy also Georgia, because these were often uh, part of one kingdom, were the Arakshids, who were the ruling family who preceded the Sasanians, I believe. I don't remember what, what dynasty it was, but it's very interesting stuff. No, yeah, and it, there's so much great stuff in the Caucasus. Like uh, one story I love, which is almost, it feels very modern, like a very kind of 19th century arrangement. Uh, you know, Rome and the Sasanian Empire, actually this might have been the Parthian Empire before the Sasanians. Uh, in any case, Rome and the Persians were always constantly at war. Uh, there's like an incredibly, almost tedious history of warfare between Rome and Persia for about a thousand years. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, in one of the, around, I think around the time of Nero, I think it was, there was this very funny power sharing agreement over Armenia, which at the time, you know, Armenia was a very ancient kingdom. Armenia had been a unified kingdom for a long time. And, but it was constantly this battle site between Rome and Persia. And so in the middle of these constant conflicts. Eventually, the emperor of Persia and the Roman emperor Nero came to this pretty funny agreement where uh, the Persians would have actual control, actual hegemony over Armenia. And specifically, it was that the, uh, the Persian king would have to approve every Armenian king. But the deal was that the Romans would have spiritual influence over Armenia. And that even though each king was selected by Persia, they had to be somehow anointed by the Roman emperor. So uh, the king wouldn't, the king who was chosen by Persia wouldn't be considered legitimate until Nero went all the way over to Armenia to give him his blessing. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and speaking of uh, of blessing and Christianity, uh, these two countries really pride themselves on being the first Christian nations. Yeah, are they, are they, are they, are they older than Ethiopia in that sense? I believe that Armenia became Christian in like the 320s or something like that. Uh, don't quote me off that. That it's uh, I've been absorbing a lot of absorbing a lot of information. But yeah, there's actually a lot of uh, like beef between Armenia and Georgia. It's mostly like friendly stuff. But there's also like, for example, Armenians love to claim that the Georgian alphabet was invented by by Meshtot, who was the same guy who invented the Armenian alphabet. Where, but they're very proud. In fact, one yeah. time I was doing laundry in Belisi and I just like started talking to this guy who's like the perfect uh, Soviet boomer. God bless him. <laughs> and he just started telling me about how like if Armenians invented our alphabet then how come we have three alphabets and they only have one 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I love the, uh, you know, I live in a very Armenian part of California and I love seeing the, I love the Armenian alphabet. It's, it's so, it's so beautiful. I don't, my girlfriend said a while back that it looks like every letter is a different kind, kind of U. It's like all made out of U's and that's kind of mm -hmm. true. It does look like that. Um, all right, but so we've been kind of scattershot so far. Let's, you know, maybe put this whole thing in focus. Why don't Sam, why don't you just tell us about the broad strokes of your trip to Georgia and Armenia. Where do you go? What really caught your eye? What shocked you? What amazed you? If you go again, yada, yada, yada. Just take it from the top. Well, from the top, I absolutely would go again. I want to go again. It's one of the most incredible places that I've been and I love it very, very much. And hopefully I, I have the opportunity to see it sometime soon because my plans actually ended up being a bit derailed. I had a whole itinerary uh, planned out that would have had me going all the way across the country, particularly the Western half. But in practice, I was based in Tbilisi and just exploring the city as well as going on day trips, mostly to the eastern part of the country. Where do I even start? Uh, well, um, well, well, I mean, just mention some of the places that I went to. Uh, my favorite place that I went to was Kazbegi, which is like all the way up in the north. It, it's some of the most stunning mountains you'll probably ever see. It's it's uh, somehow even more beautiful than the Alps, if that makes sense. That's one of the things that uh, the Caucasus is really renowned for, you know, mountains, because boy, do they have a lot of them. And uh, oh, yeah, they're yeah. And and they're all very beautiful. Uh, so Kazbegi is a must go. There's this uh, one particularly beautiful church, the Holy Trinity Church, mm -hmm. I believe it is. That's uh, well, I mean, there's a ton of Holy Trinity churches, but the one in Kazbegi, it's like if I were a religious person, then just being there would would like reinforce my faith in God. Let's let's put it that wow, way. Because whoa, like, whoa, whoa, explain. Yeah, I, I mean, it's like just this church that's high up in the mountains. It's surrounded by all these incredible peaks. And of course, like uh -huh. this was kind of a necessity because Georgia was a battleground for many years. Uh, the Persians, they never quite went away. They would always be invading. And in addition to the Persians, you also had the Ottomans, uh, you had uh, the Russians, you had various regional groups. And, you know, I just should pause for a second. I think, you know, and one other important group you missed, kind of uh, intermediate between the Persians and the Ottomans, is, you know, the uh, the Seljuk Turkic Empire, uh, which uh, really tore through the Caucasus in, like, the 11th century and 12th century, and eventually, sort of, in a roundabout way, led to the establishment of the Ottoman state. Yeah, absolutely. So, Georgia really bears the scars of, the of like, all of these invasions. Uh, Tbilisi was burned to the ground something like a hundred times. I was told. <laughs> so because of that, like they had to get very creative about where they kept their treasures and their holy stuff. Well, I mean, Christianity already had a very long tradition of like going out into the wilderness, broadly defined, as we talked about in the Christian Saints episode. In the Saints episode. Absolutely. Yeah. The Desert Fathers. And so because of that, they also uh, would go to all of these remote places in, in Georgia, like Osbegi. Uh, and because this was also a place that was constantly getting invaded, it made made a lot of sense to build these wonderful churches high up in the mountains that would be more, much more easily defendable. These would be the kinds of places where like you could stash your holy stuff and uh, wait out the invasion uh, because. Yeah. And that's so cool. Like 
all the the underground, like basically ancient bunkers, pretty much ancient fallout shelters. Well, well, above ground, but way above ground, like two thousand meters above ground. But um, oh yeah, yeah. I think I, I'm confusing it with the underground bunkers in in like Anatolia proper. A lot of like old Byzantine. Oh, you mean like Cappadocia? Yes, a lot of old Byzantine and and Ottoman and even earlier towns have these underground hiding chambers where you can you know store your treasure. But I think this is the same thing. It's just it's up in the mountains instead of underneath the mountain. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And when you go into uh, Georgian churches, for example, the Svetit Choveli uh, monastery in, in, in Sreta, uh -huh. one of the things that jumps out at you almost immediately is that the walls are covered with these beautiful paintings that are many centuries old, which are also defaced. They have, many of them have like their eyes or their entire faces scratched out. And as it turns out, this was something that the Persians did fairly often whenever they invaded because like um, in Islam, you're not supposed to depict the human form. And so they would just go into these, chur these churches and scratch out as as many faces as they could. So, so like crazy. even the churches in, in Georgia, they, 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 they bear the marks of this really crazy landscape yeah. and uh, warlike terrain. But anyway, um, religion, it's it's a huge deal in Georgia. I was actually surprised by just how religious they are mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, as a deracinated American <laughs> who doesn't really have a particular kind yeah. of faith. Like over there, it's pretty normal for like taxi drivers to cross themselves whenever you drive by a church just because like oh wow it's yeah yeah it's that normalized but i mean like despite the fact that they're very very religious christians they actually love jews over there as they will not stop telling you of it oh nice so you told them you were jewish and they were like hey yeah yeah i mean like basically their rationale is that jesus was a jew and we had jews yeah. for 2500 years and yeah. jews brought back a bunch of relics from jesus's life into georgia itself so so there are bros you know mm, right and you know i actually i wonder if you know because because georgia was christianized so early uh, i wonder if any of the first christians in georgia were, you know, ethnically Jewish. At the very least, I'm sure there's some kind of folklore tradition about Jewish Christian disciples bringing Christianity into uh, into Georgia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just recently started reading, reading the Georgian uh, Royal Chronicles. And yeah, there there's a lot of stuff to that effect in yeah. there. But I mean, I also wouldn't uh, chalk this up to, uh, uh, to, you know, like the ancient Jewish roots of Christianity for fostering this attitude. Just because like if you go over to neighboring Armenia, for example, there's a much more more complicated relationship with Jews over there, for for lack of a better word. Really? Yeah. Uh, I mean, like within the Soviet Union itself, like Jews and Armenians never really liked each other that much. I know that. I'm of course like speaking in very very broad terms, but I mean I like that. Uh -huh. yeah. I, I mean, it kind of makes sense like when you get over there because I mean like one of the things that I I learned in a way that like I hadn't expected was that in Georgia the Armenians were often playing a very analogous role to that which the Jews were playing in like Eastern Europe. So right. No, it's, yeah, it's, it's you know, the, the, you hear about like, it's the classic anthropological term is like a middleman minority, a group of people who are not necessarily culturally powerful, but have an intermediate position in a certain country where uh, the, the peasants are from one cultural background, the nobility are from another, but the merchants and craftsmen are from a third group. And that's like, that's yeah, Jewish people in parts of Eastern Europe, Chinese people in parts of Southeast Asia, and Armenians in the Caucasus, as well as at one point, uh, Eastern Europe too. There used to be Armenian merchant communities mm -hmm. in Hungary and Poland, which is kind of crazy. I mean, there's that one anti-Semitic joke that's like, an Armenian is a Jew who followed a rolling penny into a church. Oh yeah, yeah. They, 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 they love those uh, old Eastern European, Middle Eastern jokes like that. 
that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, like, it's like it's kind of funny, honestly. But anyway, uh, just because, like, they occupied the same kinds of social niches, I feel like that led to friction between yeah. Jewish and Armenian uh, communities when they actually did interact. Yeah, I think it also kind of an elephant in the room here is the fact that Armenians are probably victims of the second most brutal uh, 20th century genocide in, that in, you know, Europe, if you can call it that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And on that note, actually, this... Uh, uh, the anti-Semitism is actually kind of relevant here just because uh, one of the countries selling the most weapons to Azerbaijan at the moment is, of course, Israel. Oh, is Israel, right. And so that's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. So because of that, like, they just associate, like, Israel with Jews in general. No, that's, and that's I mean, awful. given, like, the difficult situation, like, it's not good, but I'm not going to judge them too hard for given what they're going through, you know? No, it's analogous, it's analogous to, yeah, it's analogous to, you know, Islamophobia, sorry, to anti-Semitism in the Islamic world. The irony, of course, being that the group collaborating with Israel are Muslim Azeris. So yeah, that's like, it's a weird inversion of the kind of, of the classic expression of anti-Semitism in Muslim countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just like the day after I flew out of Armenia, they opened up this monument to the people behind Operation Nemesis. And now both the Turks and the Azeris are really flaming mad to the point where Turkey, I believe... To pause here, Operation Nemesis was this really interesting covert operation led by Armenians after the Armenian genocide to track down and assassinate large numbers of Ottoman officials involved in prosecuting the Armenian genocide. Yeah, so uh, this was not received well in Turkey. Turkey, in fact, closed its airspace to Armenian uh planes as a response to this. But I mean, like even beyond that, you can tell that it's a very tense mm -hmm. um, atmosphere. When you're walking through Yerevan, you see a lot of people in military uniforms. And in fact, like on April 23rd or 24th, uh, the Azeris, they mm -hmm. took over uh, a border control point into Artsakh. So now there's a lot of uh, fears that what remains of the Armenian population there is going to get starved out very soon. Right. And we should say this is less than two years after an open war between basically Armenia and Azerbaijan over the Artsakh territory, which Armenia lost. Yeah, it's it's very grim stuff. Yeah. Uh, just just something that I kind of I just found is interesting is that so I live in a very Armenian part of L.A. Um, so that that war was a really big deal right when I moved here. You saw a whole bunch of Armenian flags. You saw a whole bunch of Artsakh flags, which which is a kind of a variant of the flag of Armenia. There's even a shopping center near me called Artsakh Plaza. Interestingly, uh, and there's also an Artsakh Boulevard, but about two years later, you don't really see many Armenian flags anymore. I don't know if it's because the diaspora has kind of lost interest, or maybe it's because they're mad at the government for losing the war. I don't know, but you see a lot less Armenian flags today than you did a year, two years ago, or even one year ago. This is just pure speculation on my part, but Armenia is, gets slandered a lot as like a Russian puppet or an Ar Iran Iranian puppet. And given uh, the state of things right now and the ongoing war in Ukraine, uh, there's probably some pressure for Armenians to distance themselves a bit. Yeah. And, and the irony, of course, is that, you know, from what I understand, Azerbaijan, who is 100% the aggressor in this conflict, they benefit from trade from the US, from Russia, from Israel, they are much better funded than Armenia is. Armenia kind of gets accused unfairly of, you know, of being of under undue Russian influence, but there's 
plenty of Russian influence in Azerbaijan, especially economically. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Right now, Russia is routing a lot of its gas through um, Azerbaijan, which is, of course, yeah. which, of course, they're profiting very handsomely from given the energy crisis and which they are currently using to yeah. build up their military forces to take Yerevan, as they are right. constantly screaming about at this point. Right. And, and, and yeah, and, and we should mention that, like, um, the Azerbaijan-Armenia Ar war got a lot less attention than the current Russia-Ukraine war did, even though if, if you're looking at it from like a liberal democratic perspective, it's the same kind of thing. Azerbaijan is a country completely controlled by a very tiny plutocratic class. Basically, one family controls the entire country, or a couple families that are, that are all intermarried together, control the entire country, the economy and media and government. Whereas Armenia and Georgia too are both like you know, genuine democratic republics. But uh, Armenia did not get anywhere near the amount of sympathy as Ukraine is getting right now. Uh, maybe it's because Ukraine is too close to Russia. Maybe it's because Ukraine is a much smaller country. I don't know, but it's it's definitely unfair. But a lot of people have talked about uh, how you know Ukraine gets more sympathy in other parts of the world. So we don't have to belabor that point. Yeah, well, I mean, shifting back to my trip a bit, uh, let me just talk about how I was personally oh, impacted yeah, let's by, get back there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, by the Azari menace. Oh, um, please. Yeah. One of the trips that I took out was uh, to, a con to a monastery complex called uh, David Gareja. It's in the desert, basically. Well, they call it the desert, but it's not exactly a desert. It's more of like uh -huh. a clay basically, which uh, I had the bad luck of going there on a day when it was raining buckets. So you can imagine that I was slip and sliding all over that clay and it was getting stuck to my shoes and it was one of the nastier experiences. But anyway, like later on in the day, we went to the monastery itself. And as it turns out, a huge part of the complex is currently inaccessible to anyone because it happens to formally be on the Azari side of the border. And it's been closed for years because uh, the president of Georgia, who is mostly a symbolic figure, mind you, she doesn't have any actual power. She said something off color a couple of years ago. And so um, Azerbaijan decided to punish Georgia by taking this complex that's very important to their religion and just making it off limits, period. Like the part that is in Azerbaijan proper, it's actually the more impressive part of the complex. It has like all of these wall paintings from like the 9th, 10th century that I unfortunately wasn't able to see, but hopefully it'll be resolved by the time I'm there next time. Yeah, hopefully. Okay, so you think you definitely go back to the Caucasus? Oh, absolutely. Like there's no, like, like it's such an, an incredible yeah. place in many respects. Well, I mean, just to talk about the positives, of course, like Georgian food is amazing. Like I've I've loved Georgian food for a very long time. It was. Can you can you get can you get a lot of it in New York or? Uh, yeah, yeah, I haven't like like thankfully we have a large Georgian diaspora over here, so restaurants Ooh. aren't an issue. So I'm like whenever there's yeah. something to celebrate, I'm just like let's go to a Georgian restaurant. That's awesome. Yeah, they're also renowned for their wine. Of course, braver people can also try something called chacha, uh, which is a result of the way that uh, that the Georgian wine industry works. Like their viticulture, it's older than uh, the one that ended up in Europe. And it's also distinctive in that it uses the entire grape. And so like this wine, it's fermented in these clay jars called kvavri, uh, pitos basically to, to use the Greek term. And it's just kept there for a while. But when they actually retrieve the kvavri after, after it's done fermenting and they like pour it out, they don't throw out the, uh, the remains of the grapes. What they do, is they give those another squeeze, they leave them to ferment a bit more, and that becomes cha-cha, which is like mm. it's from 60 to 80% alcohol. 
basically. Um, Damn. Yeah, it's it's very that strong. Sounds like uh, that sounds like something they, like the ancient Near East that they had in like Phoenicia that was called straw wine made out of raisins. I think it might be a little bit similar. Like I don't know what they do with that stuff, but it like goes to your head immediately. Like you have one shot and you're already starting to feel it. Which <laughs> I'm like I can handle my drink normally. You know, this is not uh, something that regular normally happens to me, and yet Chacha man, uh, absolutely go. Do try it and enjoy, but be very careful. That's that, that's all I'll, I'll say. Speaking on less positive notes, one thing that really shocked me was just how poor people are. This is in Georgia or Georgia and Armenia? Both Georgia and Armenia, but Armenia is significantly poorer than Georgia because it's basically uh, besieged oh, really? on the Turkish and the Azerbaijan borders, of course. Even though, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but even though Armenia was a lot more industrialized than Georgia in the Soviet period, right? Uh, I'm not sure about the specifics honestly but armenia it's like like georgia was historically the richer of the two places just because oh, it's bigger okay. and wrong. okay uh it's bigger the, uh, the land is better what remains of armenia today is like basically the rump uh state that like it was sort of the backwater mm-hmm. of, of armenia by the time that it was actually established unfortunately oh, right right yeah because because the, the ancient and medieval territory of armenia was so much larger like at one point Ar- armenia had a coast on the mediterranean mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think culturally you might call armenia people i'm sure will describe armenia as mediterranean today but it's pretty far from the mediterranean sea but uh in the byzantine era that was not the case oh yeah but, so, but please t- tell me more about so it's so, like so what so what like shocked you so much about the poverty there. I understood going into this that this was a post-Soviet country and that uh, economic metrics aren't uh, necessarily to be taken at face value just because you know how that goes like like even over here but especially over there mm-hmm. uh, but I mean if you look at like Georgian GDP per capita for example then you get a pretty respectable or respectable number it's like eight thousand dollars per year I believe something like that which is I mean it's not great it's not terrible but I mean it's fine but my first day over there i got into the habit of talking to cabbies uh because because i speak russian and and most Mm -hmm. of them uh if they're of the older generation they they also know russian yeah yeah and my first day i had this uh 75 year old gentleman very nice guy who was telling me about how he has to drive this taxi because his pension is like 120 dollars a month in addition to that he also has to support his grandchildren who work in pharmacies like 60 70 hours a week who earned like $150, $200 a month, basically. And if you look at what prices are actually like, uh, in Tbilisi especially I found it personally to be quite cheap but I also live in New York you know yeah. like in the last year they've seen like a doubling of prices yeah. basically because of like the global inflation but also because there's suddenly a lot more uh, Russians who have more money to throw around who are uh, pushing the prices you know, I guess, uh, of everything uh, when I was in Japan I was amazed at how cheap everything was compared to America but I'm sure like any like you know 90% of the world would be far cheaper when it comes to like cost of living yeah so I mean well, like again on paper like like georgian gdp per capita it's supposed to be like eight thousand dollars a month and for very large swaths of the country it's clearly not that and people are really struggling and despite the fact that things are quite bad i like i spoke to someone about this in fact why do people put up with all this bullshit she was telling me about how there are like neighborhoods in bilisi that haven't had hot water for years just because like uh, the pipes are corroded and the government won't really do anything about it and i was just like how do people tolerate this because i mean the like the stereotype of georgians is that like they're very uh 
up feisty people. They are like, if you disrespect their honor in some way, like they're going to come at you hard. And yet they're just very resigned in the face of all of this awful uh, treatment by the government. And she was basically telling me about how like it's true if you're speaking in terms of interpersonal contact, but if like if you're talking about an abstract force like a bureaucracy not doing its job for example there's no one to put the blame on and so people who just sort of think that like it is what it is and they just go on living yeah uh, uh, speaking of Tbilisi beyond that Georgia it's not a very large country but it's still very underpopulated the, it has a population of something like three and a half a million according to the last uh, census which was done a decade ago granted so it might have grown since then yeah. but something like one and a half million of those people they live in Tbilisi oh wow specifically. that's a crazy density yeah a crazy concentration and mo yeah, a lot of the country is mountains though right so probably pretty hard to live in or is that not true am I just stereotyping uh, I mean, there are a lot of mountainous areas, but nevertheless, like a lot of this is sort of a post-Soviet phenomenon where, I mean, granted, mm. it was happening before, like the capital city of yeah. a developing country, like it tends to yeah. grow. But nevertheless, there used to be much more in the way of like That's regional development in, in Georgia, where which now doesn't seem to be the case as much anymore. And people like young people in particular, like they are just leaving yeah. these regional towns and cities in, in droves to come to yeah. be because that's where the money is that's where the jobs are and yeah and i know there's a lot of immigration to to western europe too like a, a friend of mine uh, grew up in austria and she said that a huge like a huge percent of the school she went to was actually georgian immigrants and half of them were specifically georgian jewish which is kind of interesting and she said that like whole towns basically would pack up and leave georgia for austria and germany yeah absolutely that's like that's a huge deal something like a 20 percent of georgian gdp i believe it is is based on remittances yeah like the taxi driver i mentioned like he probably has some kind of foreign connection in his family to like help keep them afloat because i don't understand how he would be able to live like like even granting his taxi driver gig it's just not sustainable to it's just not possible to live on those means in that country period yeah it's a wonderful place but it has a lot of problems under the surface and I'm, I'm very deeply concerned for the people of the country frankly and the way that they've been misgoverned because I mean like it's kind of a libertarian paradise in many respects well like they have a constitutional clause saying that they can't have a minimum wage for example a lot of oh like Georg yeah yeah I mean like a lot of Georgian legislation was straight up written by like like American libertarian hacks who were invited over to the no, country I, too yes yes and, and this is classic post-soviet shock doctrine stuff it, it's, you know, like on the more cultural level, yeah. it kind of reminds you of how Poland and Ukraine have like a blanket ban on identifying yourself as a socialist, which is, you know, crazy. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, so uh, actually on that note, kind of, uh, let's kind of, you want to talk about, I don't know how much you want to get into this. We don't really talk, we kind of try to avoid modern politics too much in this podcast, but we I think it's kind of, you know, we would be remiss not to mention the fact that Georgia has this interesting ongoing political crisis sort of involving the degree of, uh, you know, Western and Russian influence in the country, you know, and you know, I don't think anybody would ever say today that any kind of so-called Asian culture is a big part of, uh, of Georgian identity, but there is this interesting East-West divide today, except that East now is Moscow, not like, you know, not Zoroastrianism. I mean, it's, it's very, very common complicated to put it quietly yeah just 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 let's not summarize the issue tell us uh let's let the tell us what you saw in georgia that's what i want to hear politically i, I didn't see much in the way of politics honestly but i was like april 9th 
Uh, it's the day after I came over there, and it's a national day of, of remembrance because in 1989, the uh, the Soviet army opened fire on a, on a demonstration and killed something like 20 people, and that's still it's still one of the uh, you know most important events in modern Georgian history. In fact, uh, I was walking past the parliament on that day, and I saw people waving like the old Menshevik flag of like the briefly independent uh, Georgian Republic, and I was like, Whoa. wait, oh yeah. No, I <laughs> and this is again, yeah, again, because Georgia was, even though Georgia is, of course, the birthplace of Joseph Stalin, it was also the homeland or the, the stronghold of the Mensheviks during the Russian Civil War. Yeah, so I'm walking past these guys who are waving these flags, and I know this flag as being the flag of the Mensheviks, so I'm just like, what's the deal here? Does Menshevism still have shooters in Georgia? <laughs> what does it look like? It looks kind of like the German imperial flag. Well, uh, well part of it, at least, uh, because frankly, that's kind of what it was. It was kind of a German protectorate from what I understand. But anyway, oh, it's like on the uh -huh. top left-hand corner, there's a black bar and a white bar, and then under, and the rest of the flag is like red. Oh, I think I've seen that before, okay. Okay, yeah. Yeah, but uh, no, not not Mensheviks, as it turned out. Just uh, like the current Georgian flag with the crosses, that wasn't... Yeah, well, I think that's a little bit like in Ukraine, how a lot of different Ukrainian figures with incredibly different ideology are now being recapitulated in this, you know, big tent Ukrainian nationalism, including groups that worked with... Groups like, you know, Nestor Makhno and his Black Army, who worked with the Bolsheviks, and groups that collaborated with the Nazis. They're all lumped together as Ukrainian patriots. Like, getting back to the demonstration, like like I saw that in like in the morning basically and then in the evening I was walking home because my hotel was right by Freedom Square and there was another demonstration going on with a bunch of people a ton of American flags a ton of NATO flags a ton of Europe flags there is a bunch of EU flags everywhere you go in Georgia that's just the way things are even though uh, Georgia is not a member of the EU and it doesn't seem like it's going to be one anytime soon but anyway um also a bunch of uh, posters of Saakashvili uh, who was the previous president of Georgia, who is currently in jail after he was lured back into the country and arrested for corruption charges. I don't really know the exact details of that, honestly, but I just don't trust Saakashvili. I'm sure he got what he deserved. But anyway, it was like all these posters of Saakashvili and, and Zelensky on the same poster. And I was just like, what is going on here? Yeah. Isn't there, was he the one who... Became, he was a Ukraine, uh, a Georgian politician who then became a Ukrainian politician. He like switched yes. countries but stayed in politics. Yes, he was the president of Georgia. Uh, then he got kicked out of office, and then he went over to Ukraine shortly after Maidan, and he became the mayor of of, of Odessa. Which I just find that hysterical. Like he's a very like pro American, pro market guy, and here he is like following the career path of a Soviet bureaucrat. Basically, that's that's very funny. And you know, and just I, I, before I forget another interesting Ukraine-Georgia link is that we talked about the movies of Sergei Parajanov before, like especially that, what's what's it called? Oh my god, uh, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. So he was a guy, he was ethnically Armenian from Georgia but spent his entire career in Ukraine. So it's kind of funny, these very interesting Soviet cultural links that still survive today. So you know, we've, we've talked a lot about Armenia and Georgia. I think that, I know that uh, there's a lot of parallels in the history. They're both very old countries. They both, you know, in their same geographic area, 
they both really are this kind of crossroads of the world kind of place. That's why you've got like old Buddhist stories coming through. That's why you have the Roman emperor, emperor and the Persian emperor both projecting power over Armenia and Georgia. What are some of the differences that you've observed? You know, like did they, besides Armenia being poorer, did Armenia and Georgia seem noticeably different as soon as you crossed the border? Well, I mean, this is kind of a, have you ever noticed how white people drive to cars like this with black people drive to cars like that? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. like, uh, like, I just get the sense that Armenians are a lot more eccentric than Georgians are as a whole. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, just um, like, uh, like I was taking a taxi in Yerevan and like the window is wide open, mind you. But the guy, he just like, he's, he still turned the fan on. And I was just like, wait, what the hell? I don't know. Like, they're going through a lot of shit right now. Can't really blame them for being a little weird, you know? Um, That's funny. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, Georgia is also going through a lot of shit, like something like 20% of its territory is currently inaccessible to Georgians themselves. This is Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Oh, of course. Yeah, because this, this is, you know, this is, yeah. And this, this is, you know, of course, this is an interesting foreshadowing of what would happen with Russia and Ukraine, because these are territories that declared independence with Russian support from Georgia and now have a very strong Russian influence, sometimes are considered Russian puppets. I don't really know if that's true, but it's a really, I know it's a really big political issue in Georgia today. Yeah, I haven't really like looked into it that closely, to be honest. It's a terrible situation for everyone involved. Like uh, Tbilisi is still full of uh, of refugees from Abkhazia, even though it's been something like 30 yeah. years. These people are still living in slums because uh, the government won't get around to building enough housing for them it's yeah it's terrible uh but uh but despite the fact that all these territories are inaccessible when you're driving on georgian roads you're constantly seeing signs that point to suhumi and uh, skinvali and all these places that are inaccessible just uh just to hope that someday they'll be reunited of course but no, I, I don't yeah 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 but that's kind of a, that's an interesting you know kind of your dentist kind of policy making it's like it's like uh, even though these territories are no longer de facto part of Georgia, legally treating them like they still are. This is, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's this how a lot of countries deal with these issues. That's like the whole issue of strategic ambiguity over Taiwan is because China legally considers, you know, Taiwan part of its territory and to avoid any kind of conflict, Taiwan basically agrees too. Like they both, you know, have this pretense of being the government of China. It's yeah, that's like extreme example, but you see this ambiguity in a lot of places. I know famously the government of India banned Windows uh, software for a long time because they considered Kashmir part of Pakistan rather than respecting a similar kind of ambiguity that existed at that point. Pretty much nobody except for Russia and Syria recognizes these places as independent countries. Like just to be clear, the overwhelming majority of the world thinks that Abkhazia and Ossetia are rightfully Georgian territory, but I'm not going to comment on that because I don't know enough at this point, frankly. No, yeah, it's not a place exactly. And I, you know, one thing I know about, uh, one little thing I just want to point out about Ossetia, the only thing I know about Ossetia, which it's one of those facts that once you learn it, you like can't stop sharing it. Uh, it's literally the only thing I know about Ossetia is that they're they speak the Ossetian language is a descendant of ancient Scythian and it's the only survive it's one of only three surviving eastern Iranian languages so these are the basic languages of the Scythians from ancient Greece the ancient Greek times uh, that are still spoken today the other two quite far away are Afghan uh, the Pashto and the closely related language Pamir and so Afghan Pamir and Ossetia all the way in the Black Sea those three are all descendants of the Scythian and Sarmatian languages that were once spoken from like Poland in the west to almost Manchuria in the 
the East. It's this remnant of this ancient Iron Age world of Eastern Iranian speaking nomads. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the world better watch out because they're coming back in a big way, folks. I don't know when, I don't know <laughs> where exactly, but it's destiny. It is happening, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a, uh, yeah, and one thing I think is kind of interesting is that um, the idea of Asia as like a place, I think is pretty ridiculous. I don't think there is much that unites Georgia and Japan in any meaningful sense. But one, there's a few tiny little things. Like one of the tiny little things is you know, how like we talked about Buddhism found its way in both countries. Another tiny little thing is that there has been a pretty interesting influence from on both of these countries from the cultures of the inner Asian steppe, whether it's the Scythians in the Iron Age and the early in, in land antiquity, or if it's Turkic and Mongolic speaking peoples in the Middle Ages, both Japan and Georgia have had, and Armenia have had very interesting steppe influences. Before we, you know, I, I, I would love to share a little bit about my ta my time in Japan, um, but I don't want to, if there's anything else you want to share about Georgia and Armenia, uh, by all means, you know, we can go as long as you want. Uh, well, I mean, like, I've, I've taken up enough time, honestly. Let's hear what you saw in the other end of Asia at this point, because we are going to be coming back to both of these places very, very soon. Yes, yeah, we have some, we are, I'm really excited for our Japan episode next week, uh, or for the first of several. So yeah, Japan, dude, Japan, was fucking awesome. Like, I, I really liked it. I, I'd never visited Asia before. Have you visited, like, you know, e Eastern or Central Asia ever? I haven't, no. Like, up, to, up, up until this point, the only Asian country I'd been in was Jordan. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, well, Japan, it, it was great. It's, it, in a lot of ways, Japan is, visiting Japan, if you've ever, like, seen any anime or Japanese movies, it really is a lot, like, you think it's gonna be, to be <laughs> honest. Almost in some kind of, like, ridiculous ways. It, almost, like, uh, I, I laughed a couple times, just because, like, if a ten-year-old was describing Japan, they would probably say that like anime characters in Godzilla and samurai are everywhere. And then you go to Japan and that's actually true. Like the, the most popular item on the Japanese McDonald's menu is the Samurai Big Mac, which is incredible <laughs> for the record. And uh, yeah, and like there's all, there's so much anime marketing in, in the strangest of places. Like uh, we stayed in this really lovely town called Hakone, a small town mostly known for its hot springs. We skipped the hot springs because nobody, I was with my parents and my girlfriend. Um, is that where the monkeys live? No, those are up north. This is in the south uh, or in central Japan, kind of outside Tokyo. No monkeys, sadly. But uh, we our, our bus took us by this like traditional resort of a hot spring place. The windows had human sized anime decal, decals, which I thought was very funny. Like you would never go to like a resort in America and see like, you know, anime characters in the walls or, cart or even like American cartoon characters. But uh, that's just, it's a very different approach to mass media in Japan. One thing that's you kind of that you might kind of expect if you know if you've like heard about a little bit about Japanese culture or you know is that vending machines are also everywhere. They're a lot nicer than American vending machines. They always have a built-in trash can, which is kind of cool. But one specific type of vending machine that you see are gotcha machines. Gotchas are these like little plastic toys where you uh, you put in a coin, you turn the dial and something comes out. And there's there are thousands of different gotcha toys mm -hmm. for sale all across Japan in the weirdest of places, in the train stations, next stores, in alleys. And they're so funny because a lot of them are like typical plastic toys. Uh, a lot of them are anime tie-ins. So like, you know, Spy Family is a really popular anime in Japan right now. Demon Slayer is really popular. So you can get like a Demon Slayer a action figure in this tiny plastic little case. But a lot of them are, are, are much, are a lot more uh, obscure. Like one of the ones that uh, I saw was uh, a whole series of tiny 
little businessman figures that like, so it's like a businessman smoking cigarettes at a train station or uh, a businessman in a payphone, like stuff like that. Like guys with briefcases. Oh, that's cute. Then there's also ones that I thought was really interesting that, that I, this was one that I had to actually buy that I, I couldn't go without. That's this little plastic figurine of Neolithic Jomon period art from Japan of like little like statuette, statuettes from the, the earliest period of Japanese history, um, which I thought was awesome. Yeah, like the ancient aliens guys, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, because they're in, in Neolithic Japan, there were these really weird little figurines that really do look like aliens. I love them. They're awesome. And then uh, another favorite of mine is uh, there are you can, gotchas you can get of traditional, like of medieval Buddhist sculpture of Buddhist demons that are, that guard the temples. And, and that kind of brings me to this point, which is that one thing I didn't expect in Japan, uh, which I probably should have known if I would have done my homework a little better, is the degree to which Buddhism is still very present in Japanese culture, mm -hmm. both uh, in terms of the fact that many Japanese people do believe in the religious aspects of Buddhism. Many Japanese people do pray at Buddhist temples, uh, a lot, and uh, as well as Shinto shrines. And the relationship between Shinto and Buddhism is so interesting. It's just so different from any kind of relationship between religions in, in the West. It's, it's, it's as if Greek and Roman paganism had stayed around, but was totally interlinked with Christianity. That's kind of what the situation is in Japan. But uh, you see like, uh, but at the same time, so that there's this, there is a lingering religious aspect of Buddhism, but Buddhism is also very secularized in the sense that Buddhist temples and uh, these Buddhist demons, the temple guardians, they are seen as these kind of like secularized patriotic figures in Japan. Mm. And uh, while we were there, we, there was a, a TSA poster that had like uh, the Buddhist temple guardians on it, just like as like, you know, like as like a, a warning sign, like, you know, it doesn't look like a little joke. Uh, like, you know, like these guys, like, if you if you don't like put your shoes in the bin, the Buddhist temple guardians will get you or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Um, uh, but yeah, like I, I'm really looking, looking forward to getting into this because I know they like basically like when Buddhism first came into Japan and they tried to repress it, but then ultimately some, some of the nobility started to absolutely practice it. So they said, ah, whatever, I, I guess there's Buddhism now. And with time, they sort of like Buddhism and Shinto sort of like integrated into each other's framework where now within the Shinto framework, all these Buddhas are right, like common right. the, as well and vice versa. Yeah. yeah and, and this, this, yes. And this is a, this is a, very controversial issue that scholars in Japan and outside Japan have been studying for like a century or more. But I think that the current belief now is that Shintoism was basically created as a result of interactions with Buddhism. That before the encounter with Buddhism, there probably was not organized worship of anthropomorphic gods. But after Japanese people encountered Buddhism, which has anthropomorphic gods. Also, I should add, um, anyone who tells you that Buddhism is not a religion, they are fucking liars. Dude, they got gods, they got demons, and I didn't really understand they hells. the degree. They have hells, yeah. I wasn't able to visit, but there's even this one little temple in in, uh, in Osaka that simulates what it's like to go to Buddhist hell if you're a bad, if you're a really bad <laughs> Buddhist. But uh, but yeah, and so uh, apparently that the because Buddhism has these very anthropomorphic deities uh, in a lot of ways, it has the temple demons, for instance. It has the Buddhas. The Buddhas themselves are revered basically as gods in a sense, and it even has, which I didn't even realize until visiting Japan, a lot of traditional. Hindu gods like Shiva and Indra are and Manjushri is very important Buddhism. there as well, I believe. Yes, yeah, they are incorporated into Buddhism as Buddhist deities, which I had no idea about. So, a lot of temples in Japan have these statues to traditional Indian gods, which like 
totally blew me away. So yeah, and so anyways, because of that tradition of statue building, of anthropomorphic worship, it seems like Shinto kind of responded to that by turning these very ancient traditional figures, which might not have had an anthropomorphic form, into these kind of human-like gods, sort of like the Greek gods or the Norse gods. So, and it, but it seems like it only happened with, due to the encounter with Buddhism. I actually find it interesting that you brought up uh, Greek and Roman paganism earlier, just because that's basically what happened to Roman religion as well. Like, as far as I understand, the Romans didn't really have anthropomorphic gods until oh, uh, Greek so, influence yeah. came around. And um, I mean, suddenly Mars became uh, analogous to Ares in the Greek pantheon and so yeah, on. Yeah, no, and I think that there's definitely an analogous relationship with uh, Chinese and Japanese culture as there is for uh, Greek and Roman culture. Mm, right? Absolutely. In a very strong sense. Uh, the difference is that China... China is a way bigger country than, than Greece. So it's a very different kind of relationship. You know, uh, of course, like, you know, for many centuries, Rome ruled Greece as a place. And then eventually the, the modern Greek identity is totally shaped by Roman influence because the Byzantine Empire was Roman. Nothing like that in, in China and Japan. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, there was there were two attempts in, Chi in Japanese history to conquer China. Both went very badly. First went very badly for Japan. Second went very badly for Japan, but also terribly, terribly badly for China mm. in the World War II and led to just unimaginable atrocities in, in Asia. But the first attempt to conquer China, mm -hmm. that's a lot more obscure. Yeah. Uh, and that involves a guy that I didn't really know much about until I visited Japan. But he is such an essential figure to Japanese history. The incredible warlord of warlords, Toriyomi he, uh, Hideyoshi. Do you know much about Hideyoshi, uh, Sam? I'm vaguely familiar with him based on Radio Warner episodes, but okay. I haven't looked into him that much independently yet. We, okay, I, I think it, I think in our second episode that we're going to do, like in two weeks about Renaissance Japan, uh, he's going to be like the protagonist, but he mm -hmm. is, he is a really interesting figure. Uh, something I don't understand is that if any American knows any Japanese figure from the Sengoku period, which was, they are also called the Warring States period, it's kind of like the Japanese version of the War of the Roses, this long extended period of civil war that led to the establishment of stable monarchism in Japan. The main figure you're going to know from that period is Oda Nobunaga. He's like the famous guy, the unifier. But what I learned in Japan was that he really only started the job and he was only hegemonic over Japan for like four or five years. Mm -hmm. And the yeah. area under his direct control was just like maybe a third of the main island. Whereas Hideyoshi, the guy that succeeded him, way more interesting figure. Oda Nobunaga was a rich kid. Hideyoshi was a peasant. He was, in his early years, he didn't even have a family name. He created one for himself, which is kind of cool. He's almost like a, a Thomas Cromwell figure because he never attempted to fabricate a noble lineage for himself, just as Thomas Cromwell was somewhat proud of being from a humble background. But instead, he was like, you know what? I'm going to make my own family and they're going to be important because they're descended from me. And I, I got to respect that hotspot. I believe that in Japan, they have a saying that goes that Oda uh, harvested the wheat, uh, Hideyoshi needed, uh, made the dough, and, and Tokugawa baked the bread, something like that. Right. Yes, yes. Because after Hide after Toriyomi, uh, after Hideyoshi, there was the, uh, the third warlord who finished the job. Uh, yeah, he, he and he, uh, Tokugawa, he, we'll talk about a lot about him in, the, in our Japan episodes. He really established Japan as both a unified and an isolated state, uh, which basically would set 
set the course of Japanese history for the next couple centuries. But I I'm bringing up Hideyoshi because stuff attributed to him is everywhere in Japan. And I don't think it's like a folk attribution. I think it's that he was such a prominent figure that so many Buddhist temples and Shinto shrines and castles all over Japan were either built directly by Hideyoshi or in response to his con his conquests by his enemies. So all these castles are built in the same style because they were either constructed or refurbished during these wars led by primarily by Hideyoshi and his immediate and his son, his immediate successor. So there's this amazing castle in Osaka and an even better castle in the town of Himeji, which from what I understand is mostly known as like a castle town. It was this fortified city where all these samurai lived basically to project power elsewhere across Japan. And most interestingly is that eventually he had amassed so much power within Japan, he felt confident enough to take on Korea and China. He would fail abjectly to take over either Korea or China, and that would really push his successor Tokugawa into abandoning any kind of international ambitions and even a lot of international contact. I'm interesting that you bring up castles, actually, because that's one of the things that Georgia is really known for. There oh, are really? basically all of these fortresses oh. all over the country in front, like over every valley, basically. I mean, it makes sense. Like this was a place that, you know, mm -hmm. constantly being invaded and it was very mountainous. So like they used that to their full advantage. So, I mean, uh, one of the places I visited over there was, uh, it's called Achaltsike, which is Georgian for new fortress, basically. It was built in like the ninth century. Um, Achaltsike is the name of the the town. The fortress itself is usually called Rabati, like uh, like the same as the city in like with the same origins as the city in in Morocco, Rabat, like oh. fortress, basically. Ooh, um, cool. but anyway. Yeah, and this place, it was like renovated, quote unquote, like a decade ago. And I say renovated in quotes because it seems like um, a lot of it is just sort of the Disneyfication of these places, which is a very common thing in Georgia, unfortunately. Like the Georgian economy is at this point very heavily built on the tourism industry. They had a choice between like building up a productive economy based on like agriculture or tourism. And Saakashvili, uh, he made the decision that Georgia would become the tourism country. So uh, now everything is built towards that orientation. But uh, nevertheless, a lot of sites are in like this terrible state of, of preservation. And what they do have is just shiny stuff for like uh, Heliji Arabs to come and take yeah. selfies. <laughs> That's funny. Uh -huh. Oh, actually, and then you mentioned you there's like a, a lot of like, a, oh, is this, sorry, was that Rabat or Georgia where there's a lot of Arab tourism? Oh, I mean Georgia. Like the fortress is called Rabati. Oh yeah, okay. it's yeah, same origin as Rabat in Morocco. Yeah. yeah. Um, you just mentioned that. Uh, one other thing about Japan was that that was very cool, and I, I'm sure this probably annoys a lot of Japanese people, but there was so much tourism from all over the world while we were there. A lot of Americans, some Brits, uh, a lot of very obviously British women with like really crazy makeup. You know, they love doing <laughs> that. Uh, a lot of Spanish speakers too. A ton of uh, presumably Latin American tourists were there. Uh, I kind of I try. I speak a I speak a tiny bit of very poor Spanish and in one of the one of the uh, the castles there was a tour group from somewhere in South America and I tried to like sort of follow along what the tour guide was saying the best of my ability but that was kind of cool there was a lot of Korean and, and uh, Korean Chinese and Vietnamese tourism too when we were in Osaka we actually stayed in the Korea town of Osaka and that was amazing Osaka is just so fun uh, it's so different from Tokyo because most of Tokyo feels like you're in lower Manhattan it's incredibly slick mm very formal, very professional. Then Osaka, that's like, that's where people go to have a good time. Osaka is much more casual. It's not as polished, which I think kind of makes it more fun. It feels much more down to earth, a little bit gritty, but 
so beautiful. There's this amazing castle there, really fun kind of culturally. There's this really famous area of Osaka called Dontenbori in the Namba neighborhood. And that's uh, this, uh, it's kind of like, this is an, an unfavorable comparison, but it's a little bit like Duval Street in, uh, or Bourbon, no, Duval Street in, uh, in Key West or Bourbon Street in New Orleans. Cause it's like kind of this like bars and restaurants district. But what makes it so fun is that every restaurant and arcade and hostess bar in Dontonbury has this, some kind of giant sign, either like a huge neon sign or even some kind of like statch sculpture. So the, the famous one is in Dontonbury. There's a, basically an, a giant animatronic crab that snaps its claws uh, on the side <laughs> of the building. So much great stuff like that, dude. And again, this is what I'm saying. It's like a lot of Japan is exactly what you think it's going to be. Yeah. A lot of stuff like that. A lot of really fun, self-conscious goofiness. But yeah, man, uh, I loved it. I, I can't wait to go back. Uh, I'd especially love to go back to Osaka. We only were in, uh, we were we visited Tokyo. We visited the all over the Kansai region, which is southwest of Tokyo. And Kansai is also really, that was the main battleground for the Sengoku Wars. So, so much about that. Uh, uh, when you visit Osaka, if you go to the museum, uh, and then you go to Himeji, you go to the museums and the castles, you're going to learn a lot about the Sengoku period, even if you're not trying to. And then we went to Hiroshima, which is very beautiful in different ways. But I wasn't able to get to the north of Japan or the far south. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Nagasaki in our upcoming episode. And so I wasn't able to get down that far, unfortunately. That's right at the southern tip of the main island chain. But I would love to go. I'd love to go to Okinawa, you know, which has a very unique history in Japan. Mm -hmm. It was its own kingdom for a really long time. And then, of course, Tokaido in the far north, the Ainu, traditionally Ainu region. Man, I would love to go. So I really can't wait to find an excuse to go back. Uh, do you have plans uh, to actually go back or is this just dreaming at this point? No, but uh, I, I'm, I'm no, it's just dreaming. I'm going to have to start saving. Uh, we, my family spent about a year planning for this one. So I'll have to <laughs> start planning soon for my next one whenever I go. Uh, the main reason I went is because my brother has been living there teaching English for a little bit. And so I haven't, I haven't seen him in person in a while. So that was kind of cool. And he, I got to meet his friends out there. Yeah. Uh, speaking of English, I'm actually kind of curious about this because I know that like to get into university, you have to have pretty decent English in Japan, but they also don't really speak English uh, over there. Like, like, what's your experience with that? Yeah, I actually uh, I didn't realize that. That surprises me because yeah, the the English level is very very low in terms of how much does the average person speak. That's a little bit tricky, but at the same time, uh, Japan is incredibly accommodating to English speaking tourists in other ways. The amount of English language signage is crazy. Almost every every sign is bilingual in uh, English and Japanese. A lot of signs are yeah, same in Georgia. Uh huh. And you know, a lot of signs are even trilingual with Chinese, or even quadrilingual with Chinese and Korean, which is you know, it really kind of puts America to mm. shame because I think that America has way more linguistic diversity than Japan does. But you see so much more English language signage in Japan than you see uh, Spanish language signage in America. You might even see more Chinese language signage, like Chinese language PSAs in. Japan than you see either Chinese or even Spanish language stuff uh, in America, which is kind of interesting. So even though Japan is much more homogenous and in a lot of ways, in most ways, much more uh, xenophobic, tragically, when it comes to language, they're way more accommodating, I guess, because they know that nobody speaks Japanese unless they live there. Yeah, I've like heard and, and granted, this was a very long time ago, but I've heard that some restaurants even have signs that say no foreigners. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that's unfortunately, yeah. You know, I mentioned the town of Hakone uh, right after uh, we've, we've, we've Hakone, uh, some noodle shop, I think, in Hakone went viral 
viral for having a sign outside that says like, please, no Korean, no Chinese. Wow. And and that kind of gets to the point where I think that uh, unfortunately, uh, Japanese xenophobia is not distributed equally. And I think that uh, it's a very tricky issue and I don't want to step out of bounds here, but basically Westerners are not see, are not demonized in Japan the way that other people, people from other parts of Asia might be. Mm. There's, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot much higher tensions with Korean and Chinese people than there are with a random American tourists. Uh, it's, I think it's much easier to visit Japan as a white person than it is as a Korean person, which is awful. And that, and that really, that's the dark side of Japan, that there is this nationalist undercurrent. And I don't want to exaggerate it because most people in Japan are really not political at all. And the far right has very little support, much, I would argue, a lot less support than it does in, uh, in Europe for instance. Uh, did you see any of the vans? I saw so many vans, dude. That was so fun. And that's what I, you, you, I don't know you mentioned, you saw some protests in Georgia. I didn't see any protests in Japan, but I saw so many political stump speeches. And one thing that's very funny about Japan, uh, which which almost seems like uh, something from like a video, it feels like a scripted event from a video game. Minor political candidates, like people running for city council or whatever, will go around Japan giving, like go around the city, standing on the top of a car, giving a speech with a, a, a loudspeaker for everyone to hear about why you should vote for them. Yeah, that's so charming. Yeah, no, I know. And there was one guy that nobody seemed to be paying attention to who wasn't very popular. And uh, so out of curiosity, I you know, took some pictures and uh, went on Google Translate. And it turns out he was from some like ultra far right party explaining why Japan needed nuclear armament. Why, you know, Japan had to be an empire again with nuclear weapons. And so I was very pleased to see. Wait, is that the one that has an emoji as its logo? Because I just saw that on that's Twitter. Different, no, that, 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 that's a different one. But uh, there's only a lot of like cutesy <laughs> ultra nationalist groups will have like uh, their logo will be like a cute little anime girl or something like that, a cute little cartoon, and then their platform will be like, we must recreate the Japanese empire, yada yada yada. Jesus but Christ. again, though, is that there's many different ultra nationalist groups in Japan, but they are all pretty marginal because the main ruling party for much of the last century in Japan has been this kind of like very respectable, moderate, you know, center right nationalist. Yeah, the Liberal yeah, Democratic yeah, Party. Yeah. The liberal Democrats, um, and who are neither liberal or very democratic, but they're they're not psychopaths. That's the thing. Like uh, the there are there is there are extreme elements within the LDP. I think Shinzo Abe was connected to some of the far right elements, but uh, the really crazy people they stick to these third parties, which have no electoral support and much less electoral support than European far right parties. Uh, and that was interesting. Uh, I s yeah, but despite the fact that they don't really have uh, a lot of electoral support, they do have a lot of uh, sway in the public sphere. Mm -hmm. From what I understand, like because of that Japanese school textbooks, that's uh, a big one. When yes. you get to the World War II section, it's like two pages, and that's yes. It. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. And actually, an ongoing issue is supposed. They call it textbook reform because there's this supposed uh, concern among the Japanese far right that school textbooks are too mean to Japan and that they need to be like more, you know, they need to be basically more sympathetic toward the Japanese empire. But but again, like, like most people in Japan, it, it does not seem like a very politicized country. There were some, there were a lot of political speeches being made mostly to audiences of zero, which I feel like is kind of humiliating. <laughs> like you're on a, on a van giving a speech and no one's, no one's listening. There were some figures from bigger parties that seemed, that seemed to get more attention that people might've heard of that were gathered around 
of listening to. But uh, yeah, for the most part, uh, it didn't seem like there was as much popular engagement with politics than there was in America. Uh, it seems like, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it doesn't seem like Japan has as much of an active culture war as you see in America or even in a lot of other countries like, you know, Georgia or South Korea, where there's a gay marriage thing going on in Japan at the moment. I oh, think. oh, good for them. Yeah, yeah. I know that Um, I know that they have like Pride Month in Japan, although apparently, uh, unfortunately, it's like it's more popular with uh, with like foreigners in Japan than locals. Oh, yeah. I saw pictures that showed like like three Japanese guys in the photo surrounded by like a sea of foreigners at a pride parade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and, and that's and that's something that like Japanese people, Japanese right wingers will say is like, uh, oh, the Westerners are importing their values. But hey, suck it up. Sorry. Uh, no, I, I am completely unsympathetic to that kind of argument. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the expansion of Western liberal values into other countries is often uh a pretext for very bad policies, you know, but uh, that into itself is a good thing. I think it's a, it's a very good thing if Japan or Saudi Arabia becomes, you know, more accommodating of gay people. I paid, I have absolutely, I have no sympathy for the like the so-called left-wingers who think that it's like based for Russia to be homophobic because that's resisting oh, the West. Oh, absolutely. No, no respect for that attitude. Yeah. So what would you say the Japanese do care about? So much uh, interest in like art and food, uh, it seems like there's a, a bigger awareness of European uh, art than there is in America. Uh, and, uh, or actually, what, I would say Western art more, more broadly. Uh, the thing that was kind of funny is that in the Osaka metro, one of the terminals in the station, there's a whole, uh, a whole, it's really funny, there's a miniature gallery of replica prints from the Chicago Art Institute. So there's all these, like, the paintings whose real, you know, version is held in Chicago, they have, like, prints of them in Japan. I thought it was mm. really funny. You would never see it in America. You wouldn't see, I, I doubt, I don't think there's a single uh, subway in America that's like the Louvre themed, you know? But uh, in Japan, there is. Uh, also, of course, you know, Japan is incredibly commercialized uh, as much or more than America. Just mm-hmm. like, every, everywhere you go, it's, I'm biased because I'm a tour, I was a tourist, so I was spending money everywhere. But everywhere you go, there's ways to spend your money. There's a, there's such a strong interest in conspicuous consumption. You know, yeah. like, this is true for America too, but like, you know, so much food you can buy is, is so cute. I think specifically, so you can like Instagram it. There's a really big interest in, ah. yeah, a really big interest in Japan in like cute, small desserts. All these Japanese people, especially young women, will go to these bakeries just to get like a really cute little like slice of matcha cheesecake so they can like, you know, take a photo of it. Pastries are huge. Every train station has, uh, in the big cities, has a whole row of different stores that all sell different variations on the same pastries. Some of them are uh, traditional Japanese pastries. Some of them are European pastries. One really popular one, which I think is awesome, is called called, uh, I think it's called Castera. Actually, you might have heard of this. This is a cake. The name literally means Castilian because it was brought to Japan by Spanish and Portuguese missionaries in the 16th century. A little hint towards our next episode. And it's still very popular in Japan today, half a millennium later. Uh, And that's really cool. Uh, As you can expect, the trains are amazing. They're not as cheap as you might expect. They're a little bit expensive, but compared to the cost of having a car, it's just nothing. And And another thing that is really common to foreigners is that there's an amazing discount you can get on the bullet train if you if you're visiting Japan for I think it's like if you're visiting for less than three months you get this amazing train pass that lets you go all over the country and it really oh I think they're raising the price on that oh, actually maybe maybe so yeah I was lucky um and it's it's so pretty just to see the countryside roll by you know and it, it's it's just like you think it's gonna be you know if you've ever been on it's like being on a train in Europe is probably the same but it's, it's so nice you also realize that even though Japan is so modern in every and basically almost every way you know uh, it's, it's like that 
they really pride themselves on that. So much of the country is still very rural and there's a lot of very scenic farms. You'll see a lot of houses that seem to be hundreds of years old, very traditionally built in the countryside, which is cool. And so, yeah, man, it was just, it was a great time. Which actually aren't old because like uh, the Japanese, they like tear down their houses every 30 years and rebuild them or something, which is related to some kind of Shinto, some kind of Shinto religious belief, I believe, about like renewal. Huh, huh. I didn't realize that. Um. Yeah, like Japan is one of the only places in the world where houses lose value uh, with the passing of time because of that. Oh, interesting. And when that's actually one of the most interesting things about Japan is that possibly for that reason, real estate, especially outside of the big cities, is shockingly cheap. There's a lot of actually interest in this now because of that. You can buy a house in Japan, especially like outside of Osaka or Tokyo for something like, I don't know, man, like 40,000 US dollars. Something insane. Well, I mean, kind of similar in Georgia um, as well, because like vast swaths of the country are being depopulated by the centripetal force that is Tbilisi. Yeah. And because of that, like prices in Tbilisi for housing, they're, they're going up, but everywhere else, it's like falling pretty precipitously. And although foreigners i believe can't like it's very difficult for foreigners to buy land actual land in georgia now it, it's it's pretty easy to yeah. get real estate over there mm-hmm. i know i noticed in japan is that they're it's pretty easy for americans to buy property in japan but you can't get that that's not a guarantee of permanent residency so you can buy a house in japan but you can only visit it on a tourist visa mm. which is really pain in the ass uh. Well, I mean, that sounds fine if, like, you're just visiting for a couple of months a year and you just want to, like, hang out in the countryside away from the big city. Have a bustle. place yeah. to stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. But, yeah, like, very weirdly xenophobic place, all things considered. Like, yeah. Hey, Georgia or, or Japan? <laughs> Hmm? Oh, oh, Japan. Georgia, it's actually uh-huh. <laughs> uh, very, very accommodating to foreigners. Like, they love foreigners over there. Yeah. Like, they are just a very friendly, outgoing people. And I mean, like, I know I'm generalizing, but like, in my experience, that's just how they are. Yeah, and I gotta say, I don't want to be too harsh in Japan for the racism because I live in fucking America. You know, I don't like, I think that outward expressions of xenophobia are probably maybe just as common, maybe more in it. The U.S., but uh, but in Japan, the difference is that you know their their policies toward immigration and the social attitudes toward integration are, I would say, much more strict in ways that don't rub me the right way. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a lot of really intense hatred of Brazilian Japanese over there, from what I understand, because in, like, the 80s or 90s, they made it very easy for those, for the descendants of Japanese in South America to come over and live in Japan, and Mm -hmm. they just found these people to be too acclimated to to South American culture, and because of that, they were just treated horribly, from what I understand. Even though, like, ethnically, it's the same people, but, uh, but nevertheless, that just goes to show that a lot of national is just cope it's just uh Absolutely. imagined and yes yeah I, like if like the japanese couldn't get along with like brazilian japanese who just happened to spend a few generations away from japan what does that really tell you about like racial solidarity or whatever no, no, no exactly yeah yeah no yeah 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 um, but no, but yeah, man, like, uh, despite the, the lingering undercurrent of racism, which again, as an American, I really don't have a place to stand on here. Uh, Japan's awesome. It's, it's great. Uh, and honestly that like they are, Japan is very accommodating of tourists, uh, especially if you got a U.S. or European passport. And that, that makes it really an easy country to visit. The language barrier, unless you're, as long as you're in the city, basically nothing. Uh, and if you've run into any issues, bro, take a Google Translate. There was a, on the, the first night that my girlfriend and I got in, there was this 
this very confused old British man who didn't realize that Google Translate existed. And so I showed him how to download it. And I think that might have quite literally saved his life. <laughs> <laughs> he was having a hard time. Wow. But, but, you know, if, if you know if, if you know how to use your phone, then it, it, you're, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Japan, it's, it's you know, of course, obviously, in many ways, Japan is not perfect. There was a lot more visible poverty than I would have thought. There are absolutely homeless people in Japan. Uh, in one of the train stations, we walked through, like, there were dozens of people sleeping on the floor, like you might see in New York, which you, didn't, you might not expect in Tokyo. The working hours are incredibly long, and a lot of blue-collar neighborhoods in Japan, they feel kind of depressing, honestly. It feels like all people do are get up and work very long hours at low-paying jobs and then go to sleep. There doesn't seem to be... Not everyone gets to enjoy Japanese nightlife and pop culture if you're under a certain income threshold. And that sucks, you know? Yeah, that kind of stuff goes a very long way to explain their birth rates, honestly. Although, at this point, totally, like, yeah. weirdly enough, with the last couple of years of COVID craziness, Japan now has the highest birth rates in East Asia, so... Yeah, it's because, yeah, other countries have sunk so much. And, you know, I gotta say, like, you know, I'm sure the birth rate stuff is true, but you see kids everywhere in Japan. Maybe, I think the birth... Like, it's like, it doesn't seem like it's, like, a dying country in any sense. It doesn't seem like it's an old country. If anything, uh, honestly, I, I think a lot of this is because of better, like, health, but... Uh, people in Japan look so young. It really feels like people in their 20s. Tw- it feels like everyone's 25 in Japan, which is really funny. I, I think it's because you know, people might age a little better. So someone who's in their late 30s might look like they're in their 20s, but people seem way more younger than Americans. And it also helps that everybody is dressed super well. Well, I correct you, Liam. Uh, um, everyone is either 25 or 80. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And yeah, you see a lot of old ladies in kimonos, which is really cool. I don't know if like you turn 80 and start wearing kimono or if they've just been wearing kimonos every day for 80 years but that was kind of interesting you know like i don't think if you go to vienna you're not going to see old ladies in drindles i'm pretty sure yeah uh, um, although i will say i had a layover in warsaw uh, before actually getting to georgia and like i happened to get into like this catholic procession because i was there on easter night but i saw of uh, several guys in sarmatian garb marching in this procession and i thought i was tripping oh that's, that's hilarious yeah dude i, th- I think say, if there's any hope for poland it's either common Communism or starvationism. They gotta they gotta get rid of the whole like pretending to be Westerners shit. Embrace the East. Yeah, I mean like I asked around for the record, and this isn't like some kind of weird nationalism stuff. These are probably just like street entertainers in touristy districts who happen to like go there in their like work clothes. Oh, okay, okay. Ah, I see, I see. Like unexpectedly large number of kids in Japan. Everyone is 25 or 80 and, and people are healthy. Well, I mean, it sounds like something's going right for Japan, at least. That's great. Yeah, Georgia, I like, I don't know what's up. Honestly, maybe I just like had a very skewed um view of the country, but I didn't see that many kids, which kind of surprised me because I expected them to have like larger than median families by by western standards at least i i i I think the issue is that georgia has a high immigration rate and japan has very basically zero immigration people don't leave japan very often but a lot of people leave georgia and take their kids oh yeah yeah absolutely Uh, do you have any questions uh, related to georgia uh yeah how does anything that like took you out anything that surprised you things that were maybe shocking or like anything about the country that you really didn't expect just let me know for either country for georgia or armenia i'd love to hear well i'd say that i got what i had expected except the driving was crazier than i thought (laughs) yeah and like i thought that georgian driving was kind of nuts right because these people they just like a lot of bdc it doesn't have traffic lights at all period so you're just kind of winging it a lot of the time but i mean like even beyond that i was like okay this is 
nuts. It can't get any worse, right? And then, like, yeah. I take the Marshrutka from Tbilisi to Yerevan, and mm-hmm. we cross the Armenian border, and this dude is flying. He's going, like, 120 kilometers in the 60-kilometer uh, per hour zone, and I'm... Like, honestly, a little scared for my life at that point, because it's like, like, (laughs) yeah, like this was a road at the side of a cliff, mind you. This wasn't like a well-built highway. It was just like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) What the fuck is going on? Well, as as somebody who who lives in Los Angeles, uh, very funny that that's something that that, that's a driving habit that goes back to the old country. I don't know if I would have expected that. Uh, uh, oh my god but yeah <laughs> i mean even beyond that like i said like i was kind of surprised by the degree of militarization you see in the streets of armenia but they are yes very it's much a under country, siege, they, yes, so. it's a country under siege and, and that's the thing it's like that's horrible and terrifying and like you know a, a lot of armenian americans not especially not so much these days especially a couple years ago were incredibly patriotic often in kind of aggressive ways and you know i'm again we are very anti-nationalism of any kind of this podcast but armenia is historically has been victimized in absolutely disgusting ways by by turkey and in many ways is the behavior of Azerbaijan, which is culturally and politically very close to Turkey, really is uh, really rhymes with what happened a century ago. It's 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 there's continuity there, and so you know, like, I absolutely do not blame people in Armenia for mm-hmm. being very assertive of their nationhood. You know, whether you know, I know like whether or not you think the nation is a thing that exists, you can't fault somebody for defending it when they are at they are under threat in this sense. And it is unfair that the situation in Armenia has received received very little press coverage outside of California, where there is a big Armenian diaspora. Yeah, and so it's interesting that like, uh, that it, even for an outsider like you, it's it's the, the degree of militarization is so evident. Like, it is what it is, right? I'm ultimately, like, powerless to do anything, but I just felt so deeply for for these people, yeah. man. Like, they've been through so much shit just in the last century, yeah. and yeah. it... Like, it doesn't seem like it's going to get any better. And, like, all of the cards are literally stacked against them. It just... Yeah. uh, Just... Hoping for the best, I yeah. guess. Okay, well, yeah. all right, well, let's, uh, yeah, you know, uh, at the risk of ending on an unhappy note, uh, let me just say, uh, I've, I really had uh, a really fun couple weeks in Japan. It sounds like you had a great time too. It's funny how our vacations, you know, kind of coincided. And uh, man, I, I'm probably not going to go to Japan in person in a long time, but we are going to be back in just one week in spirit to Japan with a long episode on the end of the Sengoku era, which really established so much of modern Japan. I just want to say, if anyone listening is planning on going to Japan in the near future, run, don't walk. It's awesome. Spend as much time as you can in Osaka. Uh, really spend lots of time in the Kansai and Hanshin region. It's so beautiful. So much about it is great. Go to Kyoto, visit the Inari Shrine, walk up the steps, see the, the Fox Shrine, you know, go to uh, go to the Golden Temple in Kyoto. It's amazing. The Buddhist temple, really, really great town. Visit Hiroshima if you have time. Uh, we stayed in kind of like the hipster part of town. It was awesome. Loved it. Hell and I yeah. gotta say, man, I am now a Hanshin Tigers fan for life. We went to a baseball game. They kicked the shit out of the Tokyo Swallows and I came home with a beautiful Hanshin Tigers hat that even though it's too small for me, I'm gonna cherish <laughs> it. Well, I'm, I'm also going to 
put a huge recommendation for Georgia and Armenia for any of our listeners. It's great. It's it's really an incredible place. You're going to see like there's really something for everyone. Like there's nature, there's uh, historical stuff, there's a lot of really beautiful churches. The cuisine, of course, is incredible, both food and drink. Um, and yeah. also, I mean, it's also like surprisingly cheap. Like I mentioned that it's getting a lot more expensive for Georgians themselves uh, because of the large numbers of Russians who are coming over there to escape the draft. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. just to give you guys a reference point, like including my flight over there, I spent like something like between two and a half and three thousand dollars for the entire trip that lasted almost three weeks. So, I mean, if you're looking to travel on a budget, then but by all means, Georgia is an incredible place to go for not that much money. Yeah. In a similar note, Japan is much more expensive than Georgia, but it's it's not as expensive as the United States. Traveling and lodging and food is a lot cheaper. The only expensive thing, which is incredibly expensive, which you're going to have to save for, unfortunately, is the plane tickets. But uh, if you go at, a, we went at a bad season uh, because this is, tourism had just opened up to Japan after basically three years of being closed. Mm-hmm. Kind of a mini Tokugawa isolation just then. Uh, and also we went during the cherry blossom season because that was the only time that my brother was off work. If you go at a different time of the year, tickets are going to be way more affordable. I would definitely recommend that. And also uh, Airbnbs are really cheap. Just make sure you're in a good one. Some of them are really small. I was totally fine staying in like a very cramped conditions. But you know, if you've got, if you're more, I don't know, if you've got any princesses of the princess and the peas among us uh, might have an issue. Yeah. Well, Japan is also one of the places you can go to actually live in the pod. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if anyone is looking forward to experiencing the future, you can uh, (laughs) head on over there and stay in a pod hotel. Exactly. All right. Well, on that note, it's been great. Uh, I think it's very fun that the two of us now have seen the two extreme ends of Asia. So I think that now we got to work our way to the middle. Maybe you and I can meet in uh, Mongolia one of these days. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, on that note, uh, this is great, man. I know this wasn't really a real episode. I hope you guys aren't too disappointed, but we've got some great stuff coming out really soon. Lots of Japan, lots of the Caucasus, as well as some other, you know, our classic bread and butter. We've got some episodes about early modern Europe coming out soon, too. So stay tuned for the next couple of months. We've got some really fun stuff coming soon. Mm-hmm. This has been Gladio for Europe. Signing off. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.